Active 911 is proud to partner with the Code 3 podcast. Active 911 designs technology for first responders to help heroes save lives. Learn more at active911.com. We cannot say, well, fires are down, so we need to shift our focus elsewhere. We have to focus even more on our skills because we don't get the reps in the real world that can keep our skills high. Los Angeles, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me today on another edition of Code 3. This is the show that gives you all the information on a firefighting topic that you need in about 20 minutes. And now a note, please stick around until the end of the show for some news. Now let's get started. I have no idea how many hundreds of times I've heard the old phrase, practice makes perfect. Of course, nowadays we understand that that phrase is very wrong. If practice is going to be worthwhile, we need to practice the right things the right way. Practicing the wrong things is a waste of time. And practicing doing things incorrectly only leads to learning bad habits. And in this job, that can get you killed. So how do we avoid this? Well, have you ever heard of reflexive readiness? If you've heard my guest today speak at a conference, you may have. Making his return to Code 3 to explain this is Corley Moore. Corley is a battalion chief for the Moore, Oklahoma Fire Department. He's got 25 years in the fire service, and he also hosts the weekly scrap at Firehouse Vigilance. And Corley Moore joins me now. Welcome back to Code 3. Oh, very excited to be here, Scott. Very excited. Good. It's great to have you. So let's start at the beginning on this topic. What the heck is reflexive readiness? Uh, Man, it's a term I coined. I I say I coined. I I don't know where I got it from, but it's a a term that we all understand what reflexes are. You know, back in the day when you go to the doctor and he'd hit your knee with that, that, that mallet and your knee just jerked. You know, you didn't think about it. You didn't have to. It was just a reflex. Those are just automatic. And then uh, readiness, of course, in the fire service is just that condition of being ready to help others. And so reflexive readiness is just a condition of a constant condition of being ready to help others. No, no thinking about it. It's not a conscious uh, effort. It is, it is reflexive. So that's where the term comes from. This is what people mean when they say my training just kicked in. Absolutely. But that, that unconscious competence, if you're familiar with Martin Broadwell and his four levels of teaching, you know, you start with that, that unconscious incompetence where you, where you don't actually know what you don't know. And you're just, it's kind of the ignorance uh, is bliss type state. And then as you progress and you learn, you figure out, oh, whoa, there's stuff I don't know. And then, you know, you, you, you keep transferring up those levels until hopefully you can get to that unconscious competence, what I call reflexive readiness. Let's talk about that for a second. You said the first level would be unconscious incompetence. 
And I like the idea that this is where you don't know what you don't know. 100%. And, and this is the point where if you don't figure it out, you never know that you're, you know, this is just ignorance. I mean, and I don't mean that in an insulting type fashion, but when you're ignorant of something, you're usually unaware that you don't know it. And uh, you, to get out of this, this stage, you have to become aware. You, you have to recognize your own incompetence and say, wait, there's value in learning more. And if you don't make that jump, you will never leave that ignorant state. Now that sounds like it requires tossing part of your ego out the door. Well, without a doubt, I think ego is probably, I can, I can speak for myself, but ego is uh, one of the number one obstacles towards self-improvement, without a doubt. Uh, a person cannot learn what they think they already know. And I think that was Aristotle, but I could be wrong on that. But uh, absolutely, it is a, uh, the ego is number one enemy. I really do firmly believe that. Is this where a probie starts, where they come in the door thinking they know everything because they've been to the academy? It can be, especially when you get that, you know, uh, they call him the two-year 20 guy, uh, the guy that has two years on but acts like he has 20. Yeah. You know, and that, it can be, absolutely. Uh, it, it And I, I don't like to say all probies because there are some that are very humble and ready to learn. And, and But, yes, absolutely, it can be one of those people that comes in and, and they think they know everything because they got that certification or that, uh, they just graduated, and so they're ready. All right, and then what's the second stage? As you start to become aware that you are incompetent in something, then you move to the point where you're aware of it, and that's the second stage. And it's it's the dawning comprehension, as I like to call it, that you actually don't understand something. And, you, and, and, and it's not like you just say, oh, I don't understand this, and you get the ability to all of a sudden perform it. But now – you can consciously work on it. And I always, I always talk about like when you first start driving a car, when you're, you know, get your driver's license or even practicing for it, everything you do, you have to think about uh, from shifting, you know, the gears or, or uh, putting it in part to turning on the blinker and, and gripping that steering wheel. And, and then, you know, you fast forward as you get more and more and, and you move out of that consciously thinking about everything that you're doing. And there's a lot of mistakes made in this stage. This is where you make a ton of mistakes as you learn what doesn't work and what works and where your limitations are. Right. And if we stick with the car as an example, you will eventually get to the position most of us are in where you drive on autopilot home from work and you don't even realize how you got there. Yeah. You, what you, you're, you're in your driveway and you don't remember any of the turns or any of the actions you took to get there. So absolutely. All right. Then the third stage is. This is where you're starting to get to that point where you're very competent at what you do, but you're still thinking about it. It requires concentration to do it properly and to do it perfectly. And you have to think about each process and break it down into steps. And, and that's, this is where reps matter the most. And it's where the sayings come from. Like practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Then, and this is the stage where you've learned a lot from your mistakes that you did earlier on but now you're consciously being competent at it. You are almost to that point of not thinking about it anymore, but we're not quite there yet. You still have to, to make yourself do things. Let's take a little detour and go back to practice makes perfect. Okay. I know that people said that for years, and then a while back somebody realized that's really not true because if you practice something the wrong way, you'll learn to do it the wrong way. No, absolutely. 
Absolutely. So this ties into another thing that I've heard from you, which is the idea that you shouldn't say to someone, we're going to teach you the way the book says it, and then we'll show you the real way. Right. So you want to do it the right way, but you don't want to train, train people to do it two different ways. No, absolutely. And, and, and that comes from having a book or a standard that doesn't match reality. And there's a lot of reasons that exists. And that's a deep rabbit hole of, of where people make money and the marketing and, and the requirements for certifications and where those come from. And that's a big, deep rabbit hole of, hey, here's how the book says to do it. Here's what will get you your certification. Now I'll show you how we really do it. And that's the travesty that we've gotten to that point in the American Fire Service. Do you believe that the way the book says to do it is typically accurate or is it typically a academic construction? Man, it's a, that's a very broad brush and it kind of depends on the book. Uh, but well, yeah, it depends on the book, <laughs> depends on who wrote it. Sure. But, and, and a lot of those books are written by committees and they're trying to cover a lot of ground from a, from a rural department that only works in, in, in mainly wildland all the way to a, a, a urban department that, that just works in abandoned and dilapidated uh, rundown areas. And they're trying to cover everything in one book. And, and that's very tough, very tough to do. And then you've got committees that are influenced by manufacturers creating the curriculum. And, and again, it all goes back to money. Everything goes back to money on why stuff makes it in the book and other stuff does not. I do not think that every book is worthless. Most of them have a good baseline to start from, but uh, there, are, there is erroneous information mixed in. Well, where I was going with this is, when the crusty old chief of the volunteer department says something like, we'll show you the way it's really done, do you feel like that's going to be an accurate way to teach or that that's going to be a way that may involve cutting some corners or doing things Oh, I'd not, not quite up to standard? Uh, man, I, that really comes down to that individual chief and, and his ego and has, is that chief a guy who has stayed plugged in? Does he know the current? Has he read like NFPA 1700 that just came out? Has he uh, stayed up to speed and gone to conferences and seen what people are actually doing and what the UL and NIST research is saying about uh, survivable space and searchable space and, and, and insert whatever uh, you want to be talking about? And so if he's talking about search and he says, I'm going to show you the way it's done and he's doing the the human centipede, one hand on the wall, one hand on your buddy's boot as you go around in a giant train, you know, that's not the way it's been done or taught or should be taught for the last, I don't know, 15 years. It's not the state. So it just depends on is his information accurate, but at the end of the day, he has all those and that's a big part of the problem. All right, then let's, that's a roundabout answer for, no, <laughs> I don't know if that I, makes sense because I realize that both of my questions there were covering a large range of training and standards. But let's jump back to the fourth level, which is... Unconscious competence, man. And this is the gold standard of what you want to reach. And this is Broadwell. Again, this all Broadwell did all this research and made up this model. And, and I'm a huge fan of what he, what he worked on as far as how human beings, adults especially, learn. It's the... Um, Ability to take the basics off the table in the equation 
And so what I'm talking about is the building blocks, the foundational skills, the fundamentals. If you can take those and push those as a firefighter to a point where you reach the unconscious competence, you never have to think about them. You just do them. You know, it's like Michael Jordan in the basketball game. He says, that's the reason why we practice. So that when the time comes in the game, you just do it. You don't have to think about it. And that's the point we want to be at. You know, and, and, and con- but not just getting to that point and then stopping, we get to that point and then constantly look for a way to improve ourselves and make ourselves better. That is a great goal and it makes sense, but it seems like it may be tough to get there in the real world because it requires not just training, but consistent and constant training 100 percent, and it you it, it will not happen on accident that is the first thing that you have to do you have it's kind of like the first stage you have to admit you know that what we don't know we don't know we're not going to get there unless we admit that we're not there and then you have to you have to build towards it intentionally and w- with the deliberate intentionality and uh it can be done absolutely but it's never going to happen on accident or with check the box training it takes an extreme amount of effort to reach that point. And, and, and let me be clear, this is about, we should always start with the basics, you know, deploying your hose, uh, throwing a ladder, forcing a door. These are the things that we should be taking off the table. And that allows you to move forward with more things, you know, quick dawn drills and masking up your SCBA confidence, your gear, getting those things to a point where they're unconscious. And when you do that, now all of a sudden you can add skills to that. And it's like building a pyramid and it just goes up and up and up. Well, you say that any training is better than no training is too low a standard. Absolutely. Do you often hear the department's training doesn't feel like it's high enough standard to do the job? Or have you run into it yourself? Oh, I think that as I've traveled and as I've spoken and, and I've, I've talked to hundreds uh, of firefighters across this country, I think every, I think a universal, it's an exception to the rule for it to be different is what I'm trying to say is, is the training is the stepchild. It is the thing that gets the lowest amount of funding. If they're, if they need funding, it comes out of training. It's an, it's just where we've gotten to in the fire service and it's everywhere there are very, very few that have properly funded training where that's not something that could benefit immensely from an increase in funding. Have you encountered individual firefighters who started out ready to learn, but then they gave up when they weren't given any real training on the job? Absolutely. No, I think that's uh, one of the biggest travesties of the modern fire service. And, And we're seeing it's a result Man, I'm going down a rabbit hole here, but there's a result of treating the fire service like a business for the last 25 years and and getting away from our mission, which is the saving of lives and property and the the fact that we are the fire department. Too often I hear, you know, we're just an EMS department that occasionally goes to fires and that is a loss of mission focus. And people wonder why is recruitment down? Why? And there's a lot of reasons. It's not just this. It's it's like death by a thousand cuts, but um, it is the fact that firefighters don't want to promote and become chiefs. They don't. That's just a, that's just, that's just a fact. And so what you get is people who aren't really firefighters becoming chiefs, they're managers, they're politicians, and they become chiefs. And so over, and that's, that's, I'm not throwing every chief under the bus, but it's just a fact of firefighters, the guys in the trenches, the guys who know what they're doing really don't want to quit doing it and go and sit behind a desk. And so over time, what has happened is our loss 
of focus on the mission. And, and from that, it's our loss of focus on what training matters and how important that training is. And you combine that, you combine that with the decline in fires and it's easy to lose mission focus. We start building fire offices instead of fire houses. We start treating it like a business instead of a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And the, the net result of each of these tiny little cuts is just a loss of the legacy of the fire service. And we're seeing the ramifications of that. And one of the saddest parts is, is a young fired up firefighter coming in and saying, this is not at all what I thought it was going to be. And then being coming disillusioned. That does hurt. What do we do in a world where there are fewer structure fires, but people need to be trained to the skill level that when they do encounter one, they don't have to think. That is the mindset that people have to accept and understand. We cannot say, well, fires are down, so we need to shift our focus elsewhere. Right. Fires are down. We have to focus even more on our skills because we don't get the reps in the real world that can keep our skills high. Like we make EMS calls and they keep our skills sharp strictly through reps. We do not get that in the fire service. And so we have firefighters who make one, two legitimate fires a year. And that is not enough to keep our skills sharp. So that, that puts the onus on the department, on us, our culture to say, we have to stay even more focused on the training aspect of it because fires are becoming low frequency, high risk events that we have to be prepared for. Right. They need to have that unconscious competence that you mentioned. 100%. Even though they may only see one fire a year or one or one or two structure fires total in a year. Absolutely. And that, that's got to be difficult. Oh, that's the challenge. That is the ultimate challenge. I know uh, Nick Ledeen out of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, wrote an article. I reference it all the time. And it's called 30 Years for 30 Seconds. And in that article, he challenges the reader. He says, do you have what it takes to do this career for 30 years and stay engaged at a high level and keep your competence level up on the chance that maybe once, twice, or maybe even never in your career, you will get a chance to save someone's life, right? That's a hard fact to hear out loud. But it's the challenge. It's the challenge. And it's, that's why complacency is so, uh, it's so sneaky because there isn't, you're not going to, you may go your entire career and never get to make a grab, but are you willing to stay plugged in? Someone, uh, I was listening to a book. I wish I could quote which book it was, but he was talking about, it's like studying for a test all week long, just studying, like really putting in your time to study for an exam. And then test day rolls around and there's no test. And then you come back to work on Monday and it's time to start again, cramming for the test. Are you willing to study and cram and be ready for the test? And boom, the test never comes. That's a tough one. I'll be back with more right after this. Looking to decrease your response times? With Active Alert, get calls straight to your phone from dispatch via the app. Available for Android, iPhones, and tablets. Plus, get directions to the scene. Have all CAD notes in one place. See who's responding. And quickly identify nearby map markers like hydrants and pre-plans. With a low per-device price, Active Alert is a must-have tool for first responders. See for yourself why it's trusted by thousands of firefighters nationwide. Start your free trial today at active911.com.
Let me give you a little different comparison. Go for it. Used to be that National Guard troops didn't do much. And then came the Gulf War where they were pressed into service because we needed more manpower. And I will always remember there was a, a photo by the Associated Press of a Humvee that was in the war zone. Someone had made a sign and put it in the front window and it said, one weekend a month and two weeks a year, my ass. Right. Because they had been told something different when they, when they enlisted than what actually turned out to be the case. And it's reversed in, in a way because they were essentially told, oh, look, you're not going to have to do much. And then they had to go fight a war. And it's the opposite with firefighters in some ways. They go to the academy and they're told, you're going to save lives. Yeah. But you might not do it, as you point out, in your whole career. Which means that the new firefighter, aside from the fact that you're going to have to tell him, look, this is how it is now, is likely to say, why am I practicing throwing ladders when we never do it in real life? Right. So with that in mind, how do we motivate them to keep them interested in doing the things that they will need at some point? It's mindset, 100% mindset, vision. One of the great things about the fire service is the mission. The mission is baked in the cake. We know what our mission is. I don't care what department you're at, the mission is always the same. We save lives and property. And that never changes. Now, what comes behind the mission is the vision. How do we accomplish that? And that's the part where the American Fire Service traditionally has fallen short and saying it, how we do that. Chief Scott Thompson is the best. We are fire focused. We are fire focused and prepared. Yes, we may only have one fire a year, but when we get that fire, it's going to be someone's worst day. Of their, that, they don't care that that's our only fire. That's the most important fire in that person's life. And we have to show up ready and willing with that unconscious competence to absolutely crush and be at our top performance when that one comes. But that has to be our mindset and that has to be the vision. And then when you get that, then you can start laying your values into that. And then you start getting a clear blueprint of how to keep people engaged. But so often we water that vision down and we say things again, like I said, we're just an EMS department that occasionally goes to fires or the all hazards approach and, and these other things that water down the vision to fulfill that mission. That's a real shame because you start out with people who want to fight fires and if they're misled into believing that's what they're going to do, they end up not believing anything really. No, the disillusionment, absolutely the disillusionment. The thing is, we stand on the shoulders of giants. I mean, the, the history of the American Fire Service is storied with legends and amazing stories and the war years and so much that has created our legacy. But the, 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 the trend, the mission drift over the last 20 or 25 to 30 years, I would say, the mission drift has caused us to where that's all we have uh, – we're not continuing on that legacy. We're just kind of writing the coattails of it. You know, in doing this show for several years now, one of the things that comes up repeatedly is training realism. Yes. I mean, you can say, we're going to go train today, but if you only do it half-assed, it doesn't teach enough or doesn't teach anything about real life. No, uh, and I'm a huge advocate of... Uh, 
understanding the purpose of the training that you're doing. Like before you even start sitting down with everybody involved and saying, what is the purpose? You know, I, I like to make the analogy of a football team. You know, there is all sorts of practice that they do to get ready for a game, you know, from film day. When you're watching film, that's different than when you are going out on the field in shorts and helmets and walking through. And when you're and then that's different than a full speed scrimmage when you're going full speed like it's the real, real deal game. But you have to identify it from the get go to get that buy in from all of the people participating. So if all you're doing is learning a new skill and recognizing stuff you don't know, if you're in that unconscious incompetence phase, then it's okay to say, hey, guys, we're going to sit here until we kind of understand what we don't know, you know, and then you can progress to the, hey, we're going to put on, you know, shorts and a helmet for the football football terms, and we're going to go out there and walk through it because we still don't know what we're doing, and then progress all the way up to the point where you can go full speed, high speed, but you have to identify what the goal is when you start. Otherwise, everybody's kind of working towards their own ends. And I, I'm a huge fan of intense physical training that is realistic to the fire ground, but it has its place. And, uh, and it, that place is, uh, I, is Jay Bonifield is where I heard it from, but he said that you can be stressed out or you can be learning, but you can't be both. And, and we're talking like high stress level, you know, super physical exertion and, and getting into that code black that Grossman talks about. Uh, code red and code black, but you're not going to learn new skills when you're, when you're stressed to the max, you're going to fall back on what you know. So it's important to build the reps into what you know, and then stress people out. So to reinforce it. Well, you do the reps without fear of reprisal at first. Right. And it, and it has to be okay to get it wrong. You know what I'm saying? You have, there has to be no ridicule and no uh, belittling of people who get it wrong because you're supposed to get it wrong when you're first learning it. We're trying to get it wrong. So we, when we're training so that when it's the real deal, we get it right. So the whole thing seems to be hinged upon leadership that understands what training is for. It's like you said a while ago, it's not just checking the boxes, but it's for learning. That is a, that is perfectly said, man. When the leadership understands what it is for. Well, there's certainly room for improvement with probably everybody's training program. Oh, if, if, if you don't think there is, you need to go look in the mirror. Well, hopefully we'll get more people to start training toward making this stuff reflective. Well, Corley Moore, thanks for being with me today on Code 3. Scott, man, it's a pleasure always. Anytime you want to talk about any topic, you can reach out to me. I love Code 3. I love catching the episodes, and I love talking to you each and every time. And if you'd like to learn more about Corley's training philosophy, there's more on our website at Code3Podcast.com slash practice. That's Code3Podcast.com slash practice. Take a look. Well, today, June 30th, 2022, is the ninth anniversary of the line of duty deaths of the 19 Granite Mountain Hotshots. They were killed fighting the Arnell Hill Fire in Arizona when the fast-moving flames overran them. Even though they made it into their emergency shelters, even though they made it into their emergency shelters, the fire was too intense. Only one man, the lookout, Brendan McDonough, survived, and he barely made it out of the area himself. 
I feel a close connection to this tragedy because I lived in Prescott, Arizona, where the crew was based. As a reporter for the city's daily newspaper, I interviewed some of them, notably Superintendent Eric Marsh. They were the country's only interagency hotshot crew operated by a city government. So when they were lost, it punched a huge hole in the city of Prescott's fire department. The hotshots made up a quarter of all the firefighters in the department. The hole they left in the people's hearts was even larger than that. Nearly everyone in the city knew at least one of them, or their kids or their wives. Thousands came to mourn in Prescott during the days and weeks that followed. I cried right along with them even though my job was to cover the story. I also saw some great moments of kindness, like when firefighters from around the state descended on the city to give the Prescott guys time off to mourn. And hundreds of people left fire department t-shirts from around the state and around the country on the fence surrounding Station 7 where the hotshots were based. The political and legal impacts lasted for months and years. Today you can see a memorial to the crew where they lost their lives, not far from Yarnell. It's tough to get to and you have to walk in just like they did. There's also a storefront in a shopping mall that's been turned into a museum featuring the Granite Mountain Hotshots. Eric Marsh's widow Amanda runs a nonprofit that supports families of firefighters who've lost their lives in the line of duty. Brendan McDonough wrote a book about his lost brothers. Finally, there's the movie, Only the Brave, a major Hollywood production that surprisingly gets most of the story right. It's well worth your time to watch. To the crew of Station 7, we miss you. Alright, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. We're now proud to be sponsored by Active 911. Check them out. There's a link at our website, code3podcast.com slash practice. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to code3podcast.com.